0: Yeah. Hey,
1: everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. So super excited today to have special guest Lars Avimari on. We've had a previous podcast on critical thinking, which is one of my favorites, and really recommend checking that one out. Um, And we've also, luckily enough, got him over to, to come to our shores in Sydney and Melbourne, in Sydney on October 8th and 9th, and in Melbourne on October 15th and 16th. So <clears throat> super excited, Lars. It's about time. Travel is permitted post-COVID and keen to see you in person. So thank you for making the time for us for this podcast.
0: You're Welcome. Uh, as always, it's, uh, it's an honour to be on the podcast. I like talking about this stuff a lot.
1: Yes, awesome. Yeah. We've got many shared values and, and passions. So for, yeah. for the listeners who might not know too much about you, what's, what's your story, a brief background? Yeah, so actually I'm a former graphic designer. So
0: I used to work full-time in an ad agency, uh, but due to a uh, financial crisis that were in particular in Denmark in th- 2003, I had to look for other job opportunities. And I have always had a passion for exercising, for sports. So I have what could you call quite extensive experience? I've played tennis, badminton, soccer, swimming, snorkeling. Uh, baseball, basketball, um, yeah, alpine skiing, snowboard, yoga, and uh, particularly extensive experience uh, with it in regard to strength training and also martial arts. I did martial arts for something like twelve years, and even had a uh, own school for something like eight or nine years. So actually, this made me realize that it only would be natural to sort of make my movement passion into my work so i transferred uh, in 2003 2000 and between 2003 2006 i started six i started to work full-time in the fitness industry and then i got educated as a fitness instructor personal trainer and then i started to work in uh, in a big box gym as a personal trainer, and then eventually um, I processed to become a mid-level manager. And then at the back end, or the end of uh, my involvement in the fitness industry, sort of, um, I started to work uh, in Sweden as a self-employed personal trainer. And already there, I got a lot of people with uh, injuries, who had done physiotherapy or who had done pain management, but were um, at the end of their, what could you say, involvement. So they didn't have financial needs, uh, means to uh, still pay for treatments. So they got referred to, yeah, well, you should keep exercising. We know exercising is good for you and it's uh, good for pain. So you should keep that. And then they ended up with me. So I started to get a lot of people with injuries and or pain. And then I actually, because of this, were somewhat not in my field, pain. I started to, um, to ask a lot of critical questions to my colleagues, some of them who were, um, were physiotherapists. And then um, I started to read uh, articles. And actually, after just after reading uh, research based articles and research for five years, only after this, I apply, applied for physiotherapy school. So I sort of started totally backwards. I started with reading research and then
1: uh, applied for physiotherapy school. Yeah. Well, and out of curiosity, what made you take that, that jump? that link from well actually it was a good friend of mine
0: and uh, uh, a senior uh, former senior reacher at the sports medical center in Copenhagen who he advised me he he sort of said well actually you're doing the work last but you don't have any papers on it why don't you get educated as a physiotherapist and then at the beginning I thought due to my dyslexia uh, I thought, well, I'm not gonna be able to cope with the intense schedule of the school, but um, but it worked out. even so, even so with my learning
1: disabilities. Credits yeah. to your hard work there Lars. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, and uh, we're really appreciative of you being in our industry. so um for, those who don't know, what does what, what your kind of clinical practice look like nowadays? I spoke to you a few years ago, and I imagine it's maybe changed over COVID. Uh, like? Actually, not many changes due to COVID, because I work in
0: sub-regional uh, rehabilitation, meaning that people, even due to COVID, people are still being sent home for home rehabilitation after being at the hospital. So actually, my work hasn't changed a bit. The workload changed, meaning that we didn't see so many uh, patients when uh, when doing COVID because people didn't want us to come home to them. So everything I do, I don't have a clinic. It's home-based rehabilitation. Um, so, yeah. So really, I, I see a range of people with uh, chronic diseases and musculoskeletal problems. And there's... um. Most of them have some um, physical limitations also. That's like almost a precursor for them to see me. So I see a lot of people with hip fractures, with foot fractures, with pelvic fractures, and with proximal humerus fractures. And a lot of the people I see with uh, multiple chronic diseases or comorbidities also have chronic pain. And they are often in their, let's say, second half of their life.
1: Um, Yeah. So that's basically my clinical practice. And I work full time. Wow. And so mostly seeing people in their homes for for rehab. Yeah.
0: So uh, the system uh, is different in Denmark and in Sweden. In Denmark, you have this... uh, normal where the sub-regional uh, rehabilitation, they have like a clinic and then you come into the clinic. But in some parts of Sweden, particularly where I'm working, they don't have a clinic. So everything is home-based Um,
1: to, from where I work. It's interesting. Imagine yeah. you would need to be quite inventive with Loading yeah. and, and being flexible with the resources that you have and and imagine that the the context the environment also shapes the recommendations and prescriptions yeah
0: mm. so there's both uh down downsides and uh, positive things with the, this approach of course if I want to um if I want to uh, rehabilitate somebody with the uh, Let's say uh, uh, lack of strength in the quadriceps, the leg muscles. I can't just put them in a leg machine, which would be a qu- quite good uh, idea because we can uh, load it and we can create um, hypertrophy uh, with uh, with initial loading. But but when we, we you, ha- you haven't got that, then then it becomes problematic. But uh, but on the uh, positive side, often it's quite literally to, to look at the patient. Okay, what can't you do? And because they are in their home environment, it becomes very, very pragmatic. I can't do this. I can't get up up from this specific chair. Well, then we need to... Uh, train for the ability to get up from this specific chair so it's quite pragmatic that way because it's totally focused on uh, increasing the functionality specific to the patient
1: that's awesome it can really target the, the goals and and functional tasks that the person needs to improve and so that task yeah. becomes part of the, yeah. the training even though you might not yeah. have the, the most super fancy gadgets and machines around you still make do and make it very yeah person yeah centered yeah, and also
0: it's um, I think it's Worm Verm, Verm uh, Gambetta mm-hmm. I think it's called I have his book in my bookshelf uh, he says it's quite uh, easy to make somebody stronger in the gym but it doesn't increase their functional capabilities at all something like that so if it, it often in our rehabilitation we I feel, and in the physiotherapy realm, specifically, we talk way too little about transfer. Mm. So you get to the clinic, then you do some funny exercises that does not in any way actually increase our functional performance and are actually not transferring over to the specific task that the patient had problems with um and I feel that this is a often missed uh, part
1: mm, absolutely that's where experience with home-based exercise can be so valuable um yeah and if we circle back to maybe pre uh, university trainings and uh, even towards maybe the start of your your study journey, what what were some of the things that, you used to prescribe to and and believe in in terms of um rehab and treatments and pain and injuries that since then have changed or you no longer believe to be true yeah so
0: basically because of my past in the fitness field also and as uh, with my current status as a full-time physiotherapist i sort of have a sort of have a double whammy regarding the misinformation because I both ha- have held a f- uh, flawed beliefs in the fitness realm and in the physiotherapy realm. Um, so some of the flawed beliefs I've he- held is like um, believing that back pain were due to muscle imbalance. It was due to lack of a strong postural chain it was uh, um, because of uh, a weak core strength or even uh, the transversus abdominis model, meaning uh, uh, low back pain were due to uh, improper spine stabilization. And then in the fitness field, I also believed in the idea of proper movement patterns. So improper movement patterns would cause pain. Uh, And that's just to name some. Um, In the fitness field, or my fitness uh, past, I used to believe in the importance of meal frequency, like uh, the idea that you should eat six meals a day to fuel the metabolic fire, and other beliefs like the body can only absorb 30 grams of protein in one sitting. And I actually remember when... um, when I found out the idea about meal frequency, just to, to use an example, it was quite liberating because I would bash myself in the head if I didn't eat these so called six meals a day or if I didn't eat protein all the time. So I would get quite angry with myself and hit myself in the head. Oh, and Another belief was the belief that you needed to sort of eat big in the morning, smaller at lunch, and then eat a small meal at the at the evening. And that didn't actually work quite well. It didn't fit with my lifestyle at all. But even so, I got quite annoyed with myself because I couldn't fit my lifestyle to this. suppose of um, this uh, imaginary metric, this uh, this, uh, standard that actually were not a standard, it was made up. So actually having not all these um, flawed beliefs can actually be quite liberating. It gives you freedom. Um, And that's one part of this uh, focus on misinformation that is often missed, that misinformation often puts restriction on people's lives, what they think they can do in their life. And this is one of the actually really severe downsides on most misinformation. Most misinformation is not, uh, well, you can do whatever you want. That's not, it's all often putting restrictions. Well, you can't do this and you have a weak core and blah, 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 blah. It puts severe restrictions and quite limiting beliefs in people's minds. For instance, I see on a daily basis, I see uh, chronic patients being limited by their beliefs that they learned, most likely from uh, health professionals. So uh, 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 a normal layperson doesn't just come up with the idea that they lack spinal stabilization if you ask somebody who is not a pain patient and uh, they don't know what spinal stabilization is so that's basically an idea we have put down onto their head
1: it's one of the things that's so often missed in uh, conversations Mm -hmm. about misinformation where it's the actual benefits of seeing, oh, maybe our beliefs need to be updated and it doesn't mean that we need to be um, so limited in our choices, in our options, in our autonomy. It provides, as you said so beautifully, that liberation to know what actually we don't need to spend so much time and energy and resources on. I think that's one of the things that's missing in these conversations about misinformation, that the, the benefits and also the cons of, uh, of not countering the misinformation. And people still get stuck and limited yeah. in what they can and can't do with all these rules, yeah. arbitrary rules. Yeah. Often people also miss the part that uh,
0: time and energy is finite. We don't have unlimited time and energy. So after, if, if we say in the fitness field, if it's somebody wanting to lose weight, when they tried the 10th or 6th or 5th fat diet that doesn't work because it's not based on logic, it's not based on research, it's often based on the de- demonizing one particular thing, that being carbs, being protein, being food frequency, being whatever, being uh, yeah, fat, being whatever. That is not a a balanced view, and it's not a, a it's not a, a high quality assessment of the research we have. And the same applies in the musculoskeletal field. It's all about the spinal stabilization. It's all about muscular balance. It's all about the uh the uh, facilitating uh, proper activity of the muscles it's always one thing and that's uh when we talk about the critical thinking i think that's a uh in my book that's a red flag it's if it's already about one thing in an area where there is a high degree of uncertainty and also a high degree of complexity that's already there uh, um, a red flag
1: it's never just about one thing. And what helped you, the the term is crossing the chasm. I believe Jason Silvernail was one of the ones that pioneered that, the term where we go from that reductionistic one thing or um, yeah, reducing a complex experience to a single change or a linear cause. Um, and then going from there towards a more complex holistic, person-centered approach? What what helped you cross that chasm? Yeah.
0: So let me preface this by saying that I've always personally had the standpoint that people deserve the best. Uh, and in my course, I use the analogy of you should treat every person as you would treat your best friend's mom. So really, we have to, it's a bit like uh it's a huge responsibility to take somebody under our wing or under our care. And it's a big responsibility to advise somebody. So that, that is where I'm coming from. Uh, what helped actually, or the turning point was when I, um, as a personal trainer, got in contact with colleagues who were actually from the university who were exercise physiologists. So I had four colleagues who were actually studying or were exercise physiologists. And they they had a much more scientific and much more academic approach to exercise science and pain and um, exercise and strength training in general. Uh, That helped a lot um so i started to realize that a lot of the stuff that i thought i knew were actually wrong and when a lot of your firm beliefs get questions and put into um put in the hot seat then you start to think well what about the things that i'm even myself questioning what about those Um, And then after a while, I got in contact with uh, Dr. Jason Silvernail and Dr. Jonathan Fast, and I started to learn a lot from them. And and actually, quickly, they showed me how wrong I actually was in many ways. So I basically started to uh, read and listen to what they had to say and others. And then I started to really take a quick a a good hard look at many of my beliefs and try to questioning myself well actually how how do I know this is true what is the epistemological process that I actually used and is it actually valid and it was actually first after two or three years of doing this that I started to sort of participate in debates Uh, so basically you can say that uh, a big secret to my debating skills is actually that I have been on the other side I have been the one that used my experience as proof and didn't cite anything and uh, used another guru or uh, mentor's words as only proof Um, I can remember hearing a a podcast with uh, Dr. Jonathan Fast, where he did a two-hour critique of the FMS system. And I can remember getting really annoyed and angry of this uh, besserviser, this uh, know-it-all guy who uh, were totally um, critiquing the hell out of the FMS system. So basically, you can say that I have also been one of the promoters of uh, misinformation. And I have basically myself made every logical fallacy and flawed argument in the book to justify my opinion. So, what I actually try new with uh, now with my courses and with uh, my teaching and my interaction on uh, the social media is sort of trying to help people not make the same mistakes as I did. Um, And it's sort of recognizing myself and it's sort of um, a backlash at my old, a backlash against my old self. So my quite, what could you say, um, my high goal, with my interactions is to, to help people avoid making the mistakes that I have
1: made. As I say, prevention or in some circles with misinformation, it's now inoculation of the crowd. So we can maybe prevent people from making the same mistakes or the committing the same fallacies that, that we have. It's through our, our care and that value of there's a huge responsibility for us as healthcare professionals to provide the best, Yeah. to provide the best treatment.
0: Also, there's a difference in, I have not so, my particular problem or my specific problem is that we keep recycling the same errors of the past. And that is a problem. We are going to make new errors, but that is less of a problem because that is due to our limited knowledge base. So, of course, we will make new errors, but, but, but we shouldn't make the errors again that we already know are errors. And in, in, in the musculoskeletal field, we are reusing, recycling way too many errors of the past. It's a bit like we
1: have not learned from history, sadly. Absolutely. We see so much with, I can recall some of your previous posts from years ago resurfacing, and it's still the same kind of debates or or arguments or fallacies, maybe with different modalities and different selling points, but it's still the same old, outdated, ah un- unfortunate yeah. illogical fallacies and i i always have to remember that everyone has the best of intentions for the most part if you're in healthcare, um, yeah and with that just to segue to the the second part of of the crossing the chasm based on your experience and maybe even from other experiences what what's less helpful for based on your experience of crossing the chasm what was uh, unhelpful at the time for you to make that leap so you mentioned in the supportive people around you that was a helpful part to to help you question your own beliefs what was maybe a challenge or a barrier at that time yeah so the
0: biggest barrier were the internal epistemological process that i used and were Keen in using, meaning believing colleagues that had a strong opinion uh, and with a dubious amount of certainty in a field uh, as a musculoskeletal medicine or musculoskeletal care that is full of uncertainty. That was really unhelpful to have that idea. And one thing that helped helped me pass this was the realization that a flawed, logical-sounding idea can actually be quite dangerous. So something that we think is logical and sounds logical can be quite um, contagious. Um, It's a bit like asking all the wrong questions. If you're asking the wrong question, you're going to get a wrong answer. So basically your answer is only as good as your questions are. And if, if you are keying in on the tendency of people to ask confirmatory questions and only ask confirmatory questions, then your answers are not going to be very good. They are not going to be of high quality. So asking uh, if you see some effect or you think you see some effect in in the clinic and you ask yourself and you have an idea of what caused this effect and you're not asking yourself, well, what may also have caused this effect? Then then it becomes like a confirmatory loop. Well, you're just, it's a bit like um, Uh, one of the textbooks on uh, clinical reasoning uses the metaphor of a dog chasing its own tail. So that's like a confirmatory loop. What we see is uh, reality and what we experience with reality that confirms our reality and that confirms that we are seeing what we are actually experiencing. And then we just go around and around and we are not actually learning anything. So to learn, as in my view, we need to ask not confirmatory questions, but we, not, we need to try to ask questions that refute our thesis, refute our theory, refute our experience.
1: Um, I love that. What else might be going on? What, I, what else <coughs> yeah. might be the reasons? And yeah. being aware, maybe having that skill of noticing when... Maybe loaded questions are being asked, or presumptions, or many assumptions within uh, a close ended question. We can see how it can be framed right. in a particular way towards a bias. And as humans, we all want to confirm our own biases. So, being aware and noticing when we do that ourselves, I think asking the right questions may lead to maybe the start, so we can lead towards yeah. being less wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I'm thinking about it, some things that also were unhelpful were, or actually I wished I learned earlier, is that I before paid way too much attention to what people said. But I should have paid much more attention to what people could actually back up. So, so people, it... <laughs> It's a bit like uh, you say in English, you say talk is cheap. And making claims is also cheap. Backing them up with hard evidence and with the skillful clinical um, analysis of the research base, that is hard. And most people really don't put in the work. Um, So basically, I would wish... I sooner had learned that I should not pay attention so much to what people say, I should pay much more attention to what they actually can back up. And I learned this from uh, Dr. Fast. And actually, my good friend, Nick Tuminelli made a, a sort of similar point, that it's actually far more dangerous to assume that people actually know what they're talking about, than it is to assume that they actually don't. And then they then need to prove you wrong. So basically, uh, a bit more, you could call a pessimistic, view of our interactions and information gathering, meaning that I assume everybody is wrong, and I assume nobody actually knows what they're talking about, and then I need proof in them actually showing that I'm wrong and this is a sort of a, a often also missed point that believing in believing in a flawed idea is actually something very negative so asking hard questions is actually a positive act it's not it's basically it's not negative being negative it's actually the most negative thing would be believing a flawed idea or concept or notion that you don't question. That would actually be the most negative thing. Asking hard questions can never be something negative. It's actually something positive. But many people will perceive it as being negative, even if it's much more positive.
1: Yeah, it's it's really cool to have that lens and that framework that we need to back up the claims made or having a a skeptic eye on on everything. And that includes our own beliefs. So then it's easier to see, okay, there's more evidence, there's more, um, I guess, reason that this particular claim is less wrong. And then that helps us to see how questioning and critiquing is actually helpful for all of us it's not i guess the common perception from the outside might be like the if we're questioning then it it is a a negative interaction maybe it's because we're not used to having those interactions or having our own ideas and claims questioned yeah
0: exactly um i think uh, a lot of people feel attacked on their identity when they, their beliefs are questions. So uh, one key point that Dr. Silverin also made is that we should not um we should not feel personally attacked when we have questions. So we should not uh, feel um we should not make an emotional attachment to any particular method and that's actually a good uh, part of uh, advice for the new grads or senior uh, physiotherapists or senior clinicians that really having a firm belief in one particular uh, modality or treatment method or something can actually create <laughs> severe um, pain when when those um, those beliefs or believes, as I call them, get questions and they will actually having a firm belief will also be very hard for you to um, have a hard critical objective
1: look uh, at the evidence. Right. We can get so tied up and fused where if someone critiques a claim or an intervention that We particularly hold on to or believe or use it's as though they are questioning us personally it's a very human yeah Um, yeah yeah if if we look at the idea that we do need to update our claims and and our beliefs or our narratives alongside our interventions when might we need to not only update our narrative but also the way we practice or our clinical approach or our decision making and not solely the narrative
0: yeah so i think the it's it's a bit like um it's a bit like uh, interlaced, uh, a interlaced a puzzle that interlaces so everything should fit in each other so the research base should fit our narrative and our narrative should fit both our research base and also uh, our, our practice so basically we should practice what we preach and everything needs to be in um, unison it's a bit like uh, Gregory Lehman uh, Dr. Gregory Lehman has a nice thing that he can't he can't make have people believe that they are their spines are unstable blocks because he's trying to promote the narrative that the spine is strong and, and resistant and um has an inherent strength so if he can't have one thing promoting this and then another thing is totally not promoting it well, why do I need to do spinal stabilization exercises? And why do you tell me I'm weak when you said earlier that my spine actually works strong? That's two narratives that doesn't, or two information bits that don't um, reflect each other. So I totally think that research and our narrative and our practice should be in unison. But sadly, I feel that a lot of healthcare practitioners are basically doing, either they're doing tradition-based care or future-based care, meaning that their operational model or narrative have either been debunked or refuted, or they base their practice on unconfirmed beliefs that they believe will be verified in the future. And that's what I call future-based care. And this approach, either doing, either treating people as we thought the world were flat, even we know that it's not flat, or uh, treating people with some totally un, uh, undefendable and unjustifiable position that in the future, we will know that this is true, is also a problem. So basically either uh, we are doing uh, rehabilitation and basing our rehabilitation on traditional beliefs or future-based care where we think, well, this amazing treatment that I don't have any justification of doing, in 10 years time, we will know that it works. But if we look back at the history with amazing treatments, we will see a quite uh, big graveyard of amazing results that didn't add up or actually didn't show that it were the way we thought it were. So often we make quite large claims on physiological processes, but But um, but when the data then comes and we see the data, then it doesn't support the notion of what is happening in the body. There are many, many examples of this where we have said, this is what happens. And then later we find out, well, this is actually not what happens.
1: Um, yeah. We've made a few jumps to the conclusions and then there's the science hasn't caught up yet. Yeah, exactly. Or we're not going to wait for science. We want results. And that's the kind of um, the the thinking.
0: Uh, Yeah, and and that's
1: also a sort of, um, that's
0: an effect loop, uh, I sort of call it, where we say, well, I see a great effect of this in the clinic. But actually, we don't see effects of interventions in the clinic. That's one of my pet peeves. We see outcomes, and all outcomes are multifactual. Actually, I find it quite um, sort of arrogant, not by purpose, but arrogant to to believe that the half hour a patient were with us in one week were what made the effect, not the other 167.5 hours of the week. Most likely, the, the, the other hours will have a
1: huge
0: and bigger effect than our one manipulation or one technique or one modality.
1: And if, say, clinicians were in a healthcare system, where that one modality was linked to a very reputable brand and they saw some results for many different reasons. And they were practicing within this outdated, I guess, biomedical approach. So if they're being incentivized to practice this way, this is a bit of a, a challenging question for you. Why would they even bother updating their practice? Yeah.
0: Okay, so there's multiple reasons for this. One, it's the right thing to do. From an ethical standpoint, it's the right thing to do. Um, And in my view, the future path of the musculoskeletal field lies within our ability to update our governing theories and narratives and philosophies. But sadly, to some extent, we are blindfolded by our up, uh, un, uh, outdated review, uh, view that there currently are. So, one big incentive should be that it actually it's the right thing to do. And also, another incentive is that it is a defendable and justifiable position. So, nobody can blame you or no patient can blame you from doing. Current practice using the knowledge we have right now. But they can definitely blame, uh, blame you. And it's a n- non justifiable, non defendable position if we are basing our treatment to refer to what we talked about earlier. That is based upon one the earth is flat. We are treating pain as we believe the earth was flat, meaning. We are tre- basing our treatments on refuted and debunked knowledge. or we are treating it, it as we are waiting for research. That is also an indefensible position. Um, then I firmly, like I stated, I firmly believe that patients need. Not only option, but then options, but they need the best options. And doing care that doesn't provide people with the best options or is suboptimal is problematic. Um, so a bit like I used to in my course, I used the the analogy of uh, my daughter going to the to the hospital. Of course, I want the care that she is getting to be up to date. I don't want her getting an old medicine that is high risk and has severe uh, severe uh, side effects. If there's another medicine with less risk that works better and has uh, less side effects, uh, there's... In the medical history books, there are some really, really catastrophic examples of this. Uh, One of the examples I use in my course is um, SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, where a very prominent clinician promoted sleeping on one side that actually caused babies to die. And this was promoted For some 10 years, when we actually had evidence supporting the notion that sleeping on this side, the stomach, were not good. So actually, because of this misinformation, the end result were that for 10 years, a lot of babies died. That's a quite severe effect of misinformation. And not all misinformation of course, has such a severe effect, but some do. But uh, equal, another example of misinformation is the person that believes they can't do a lot of stuff that they actually get life quality from because they have a discus prolapse. And they believe that they have a discus prolapse and they have had it for 10 years. Even we have data suggesting that this is not so. You don't go around with a paper cut on your finger or, or, or um, um, a super, superficial injury from falling on your knee. The body heals. But if it's an injury that we don't, don't see, meaning it's internal, then all of a sudden we have uh, convinced patients of the notion that that doesn't heal. And that's really sad. And that is also severely limiting
1: for most people. Or patients, sorry. It just goes back to our values of helping people. And you mentioned ethical practice and that part of that is doing no harm and then doing what's in the best interests of the person. Uh, yeah, I love that analogy. If we can use our uh, a loved one, a daughter, son, mum, father, and they were in hospital. Would we want the doctor to prescribe medication that they say, oh, it doesn't have much research on it, but, you know, I think it works based on my experience. Yeah.
0: And that gets back to the causation loop that I talked about earlier. Even the doctor doesn't know that something works based on his experience. That's just a unscientific but very popular standpoint. That's why we need to compare like surgical techniques to see the outcomes. We can't base it on a small sample of one clinician. Uh, Also, uh, an often missed uh, co-founder in uh, in the clinic is time. For instance, we know that that low back pain uh, gets better within four to five weeks. So if I'm having a a patient coming in and I have them under my uh, guide and under my treatment for five weeks, there's a quite good chance that they get better just from the passing of time. I don't even have to do anything. So actually what I'm doing doesn't need to work. Just time is working in itself. So if you were to do... a Uh, low-back, intensive low-back program and sell online, it should at least be five to six weeks because then you are riding the wave of regression to the mean and time. And then you will get a a result rate with positive results of approximately something like 77%. But that's merely time passing. Um, And that's often missed. Um, another another idea is, is uh, regarding why people should update their uh, clinical practice uh, is uh, this saying by uh, uh, the legendary professor of physiotherapy uh, Jules Ronstein. He has a saying in one of his editorials uh, that nothing could be more humanistic than using evidence to find the best possible approach to care. So basically the greatest tool we have in our toolbox to know what has an effect or is most likely to have an effect on the patient that is in front of us is research and evidence. So it would be actually quite amoral to not use this great
1: tool we have at our hands. It's um also intersects with honesty with uh, the yeah. claims that we make. We want to be yeah. as honest as possible as we help people. We need to stay up to date. Yeah So I'm thinking for the the newer clinicians, new grads who have come across critical thinking um, and they may also be uh, experiencing clinical practice and having a a bit of overwhelm at all the differing opinions out there. What what might be, for the new grads, some benefits of critical thinking?
0: Yeah, so uh, I mentioned before a defendable position is one uh, benefit, having a defendable position. Uh, Another thing is that many clinicians or many new grads think that regarding pain treatments or pain modalities, it's like a smorgasbord. It's like a buffet. And they can pick and choose what they want. But most of the evidence base regarding the, uh, the supported research and also the plausibility of the said intervention is different. There's a different uh, evidence base. So that needs to be put into, um, into notion when we are choosing what treatments to do. And a benefit of, of, of critical thinking uh, is that a modality is only as good as the amount of scrutiny and critique it can withstand. So if we critique the heck out of all the popular modalities, then we end up with a short or shorter list of options, but they are much of much higher quality. Um,
1: yeah. Even and then I think the it's analogy. It's, it's like yeah. so many restaurants, you have, uh, say, a thousand in your area that you're traveling to in the new city would you rather know all the options or would you rather know the top 10 with the best quality ingredients and the, you know, the highest ratings? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and also it's, it's a
0: bit like we need to be critical of the information that are out there. And we need to be critical around, around um, around the, um, the supporting and the claims made by modalities and treatments options and a way to um what do you call is it called in english it's called the uh, to sort dirt from cinnamon so yes. we need to
1: i think in australia we use to... we use shit in there somewhere because we just love yeah. swearing. but yes yeah so sort, sort so, the good so in order the
0: to yeah, exactly. So we not need to ask critical questions to sort the, the yeah, the 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 shit from cinnamon, uh, and also th- I think being critical is also a commitment to clinical excellency. So our often missed part is that we don't actually improve the our quality of care by being overly positive, and overly optimistic towards every new treatment modality or FAD. So part of actually providing better quality care of, uh, of the people under our care is actually saying no to low quality treatments. If our clinical toolbox, and I hate that term, uh, is full of low quality and high quality, it will be some... Our Treatments will also be of mixed quality, but if we really think hard and critical about the tools or processes that we use, and we sort of uh, sort away all the low quality with non-existing or even refuted evidence, we end up with a much a, a clinical toolbox that is much more consistent with high quality care. And this is really the sad thing of this is when you get patients, vulnerable patients that are disabled that come in and share their story. And then you realize that they actually did not get one single high quality treatment. They often you often realize that that they got served a platter of misinformation, told scary shit, and often got persuaded into doing a lot of outrageous amounts of useless, low-quality treatments. And in, in Sweden, we have a, a sort of um, a shared journal system. So I can basically backtrack with patients if I get their acceptance to see all their medical history. And that is often, or sometimes, a really scary tale into, you can see, it's like uh, going back and seeing a train work. You can see like, okay, the patient started having this problem, then this were done and we know what we're done for multiple times didn't work. They got acupuncture, they got this, then the physiotherapist tried with this, this and this and this, and then, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's like seeing a train work and you're knowing it's going to happen, but but you're seeing it in in real time, but backwards. And that's really sad to see that actually, in the beginning, something other could be done that would have helped more, and often just setting realistic goals and trying to help the patient with their symptoms is often a good approach also. So they might not be totally positive, because in this field, if you have a patient that doesn't actually, we don't know what is happening, but we're trying to help and trying to investigate them. But we are also trying to inform them of at least what is not working. So they might not be overly positive, but they are at least well informed.
1: It goes back to the, the value of being able to critically think about, say, treatments or modalities, interventions, a lot of courses that might promote increasing your tools in your toolbox. And if we can at at the very least say no to the low value ones for our, not only for our clients, but for us, it will make things so much easier. And I I'd say you've probably done a, a better job if you've, if you were at least honest And you said no rather than being overly i guess um agreeable to every new fad that comes along and and just doing the treatment without thinking of the repercussions or the long-term effects and with uh, unintentionally we might be like getting people into that train wreck position without realizing it yeah i totally
0: agree um also something that that is often missed, that's people all often value integrity. If they suggest a treatment and you explain why this is not a valid option and you have a commitment to providing the best high quality care for them to help them, then they often will not uh, go away and they will not Say, well, I don't want to be treated by you because you don't do treatment X. But if, and, and they are actually not used to people showing that kind of integrity. So often, if it's done right, it will uh, increase therapeutic alliance. It will show that you are have an excellent, uh, um, you really, there are you helping them, it matters a lot for you to help them in the best possible way and with the best possible means and best possible results. And that will actually increase your alliance with them when you actually say, well, actually, I, I value your time and your energy as, um, as
1: much as, as I can like as if you're treating them like a loved one you're treating them yeah like exactly your son your daughter your mum, your father this is what you would recommend for your best yeah. friend this is human to human honest yeah not surface level you're not in there just to uh, do anything apart from what's best for them you're not it's yeah. not about you it's about doing no harm and doing what's best yeah Mm. And in the long term, that might be even more um, beneficial for for everyone involved. I think that's something that we also miss out on. There's that scarcity mindset that they will go elsewhere. They will just ask for that treatment in another clinic down the road. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If we were to look at online misinformation every time I scroll through social media, Instagram, Facebook, there's, there's a lot out there. Um, there seems to be more and more as the months go by. So what, what would be your advice for, for clinicians who, um, maybe want to, to make some kind of difference, but they're not sure where to start. And they like also acknowledging the time and energy it takes to refute misinformation. What might be some options for clinicians? How should we respond to misinformation online? Yeah,
0: so I'm a strong advocate of the Socratic questioning method to facilitate reflection and to disrupt automatic thinking, and also as a means to explore alternative solutions. However, I'm not so sure that this—it's highly time um costly it takes a lot of time but also a good advice that were given to me that if you are advising somebody you should be first you should first be in an accepted advisory position so the person that you are giving advice should first accept that you are actually in a position to give them advice and if that is not going to be done, then it will not have a good result. And that's we have some, some data on in the clinical field supporting the notion that in order to change beliefs, we need to have a firm therapeutic alliance. If we were gonna change a person's, and this is this is a new study by Prideau Sullivan's group, that if we were on a, going to try to facilitate belief change in people from a biomedical view of pain to a biopsychosocial pain a view of pain, then we need to have first a solid therapeutic alliance. And that's one thing that's missed. Now, if we transfer that to how clinicians respond to misinformation, that's quite difficult because we don't know if we have an alliance with the people we are interacting with. But also what is often missed and particularly often missed with my interactions online is we need to define the goal. What is the goal of combating this misinformation? So is the goal to change a person's firm worldview or firm beliefs or is it somebody, something else? So I really don't think and I I haven't seen any research supporting the notion that we actually can change somebody's firm belief on social media. If I get a person in face-to-face in my course, then I feel that I can make an impact and we can have an honest uh, conversation about cons and pros and the evidence base. and. And we can have a, have a dialogue on, on the, the clinical, clinical reasoning they used. But I, I'm not so sure that can be done on social media. So basically, my point of view is that, that I try to focus on those that are on the fence, meaning those that Don't know if they should do a dry needling course or maybe they should. They are on the fence. Those are actually my primary target. I don't try to change people's beliefs or I don't people try to change a clinician's worldview through online media. I think that can't be done. But I sort of um, use them to inform those that are on the fence so I'm actually writing more to the ones who are just reading the debate than merely trying to change someone's beliefs I really don't think that can be done so and I of course we shouldn't be pricks in in online uh, communication but for somebody with firm beliefs, they might feel we are being pricks or assholes just merely because we are questioning their worldview. And that goes back to the idea that we shouldn't have fixed views on any modalities or fixed beliefs, but we should try to detach ourselves from uh, the approach our we should try to attach ourselves to our tools and our approach to care and our modalities because all those things might change. There might in 10 years the the evidence base might be screwed towards something else. Now this doesn't happen over time, which is also a notion or all red flag for new modalities. That doesn't just come out of thin air, some amazing modality. That usually doesn't happen. In most cases, it takes a lot of time for the evidence base to uh, change direction. Um, in when handling misinformation on a patient level, I think a good clinician should see any misinformation as an opportunity to inform the patient or client so they actually leave the consultation more correct, more informed and better informed and actually leave your uh, session with having m- more correct factual information of their problem. Um And I really, in my view, if you track back to the interactions on um, social media, I really don't think that clinicians and therapists that promote fear mongering or perpetuate myths and misinformation online deserve politeness. So uh, Jules uh, Ronstein has a great editorial of if people don't want to update their practice and their narratives and stay current with the research, then it's their choice not to progress. It's their choice not to evolve. It's not ours. So if we are leaving them behind, that's actually not our choice. It's their
1: choice. Um. Yeah, yeah we, people need to uh, be accountable and responsible for keeping up to date. And when looking at misinformation, looking at the, the goals, and maybe there's a lot more value within the context of social media to, to go for the readers of the post reading on um, and less about the original creator and then you touched on a great point it's more the in-person face-to-face interactions that lead to the biggest impact and the the most um human to human change so much easier yeah. in person yeah. than it is on online yeah so the written word
0: is really um a problem in my view it, it the we interpret all co- communication we interpret through our interpretative filters a lot, but we also put tone on something where there is no tone. And we also get the information um, colored by our notion of who this person is. So the, it gets quite muddy when it's, uh, it's online. Something like uh, micro expressions when we are face-to-face, and something like, uh, well, I know you. I know this person. I know what he stands for. Is he something I look up to? Is he something I wish res- Is he somebody or is she somebody that I respect? And is he actually in a position where I allow him to advise me on a topic, or is he somebody that I just believe is an idiot, or is somebody who actually wants to? Uh, Wants to show that he knows more. Um, this is, uh, it's a bit like a, a better visa, somebody that knows better than you, but it has a quite negative connotation. But actually, some people are better visitors because they actually know more than you. But if you want to negate or ignore the information for somebody that you don't, trust and you don't have an alliance with but they know more than you then you tell often you can do that by telling yourself that they are arrogant and that they are besser, lesser, and they just want to be white then you have an. Um, you have a perfect fit for you not to
1: having to listen to them and going back to the, the real value it's maybe it's more about outside of that interaction we can see who who we can target the most and who we can influence the most and accepting that sometimes social media isn't the best context yeah for these deeper discussions yeah i focus a lot more now
0: on talking with the people that want to listen i have spent way too much time talking with people that don't want to listen. Um, And that's basically, actually, it's a waste of time, both for them and also for you. Um, Yeah.
1: And on that line, for those who are interested in diving into your in-person course, we're really excited for you to come over to Australia. Who would you say the course is for? And what would people benefit from it? Yeah. So
0: basically the course is for everybody who is working professionally uh, with people in pain. That means uh, chiropractors, massage therapists, physiotherapists, uh, podiatrists, osteopaths, uh, even MDs, nurses, or occupational therapists. And the course is, non-branch specific. And basically, if I view what occupational therapists do, then I often have more in common with an up-to-date occupational therapist regarding that treatment than I do with an outdated physiotherapist, even I myself am a physiotherapist because we all have the same available evidence base or we at least should have. Therefore, our treatments should be more similar than they should be uh, branch specific uh, because we have the same evidence base. So basically, participants, what their benefit will be after finishing a course So basically, one key point and an important point in my view, that's one of the reasons by my course, for my course, is that they will learn a critical analysis and extensive analysis of what factors modulate pain. And this can serve as a strong fundamental starting point for an up-to-date approach to the treatment of people living with pain. So it basically It's not just one dial, one thing that that is modulating, influencing pain, but we need knowledge of all the different dials. So instead of there's like one dial we can turn on being bio part, there's actually multiple factors that influence the person's pain but we need to know about these factors in order to make informed decisions about the care of the person that is in front of us. And I can't do that because the person is sitting in front of the clinician. So the clinician is in the best spot to do this, um, this application or applying the knowledge that we have. But in order to apply the knowledge, they of course need to know the knowledge and that, takes a lot of time and most people don't have this. So I go through, I think I go through something like a hundred studies just on pain modulators in the course to give people an informed, um, to make the clinician making informed choices, better informed choices on the care of the person in front of them. Uh, then in the course they will also learn an current and updated model for uh, for clinical reasoning, and also have a hard look at the most used uh, modalities, most popular used modalities. Again, in order to make what are high quality options and what are low quality op- options. So basically, in order to provide, in my view, in order to pr- provide, be able to provide high quality care, you know to need to know what the, the research space is. You need to know what high quality care is, but often importantly, you also need to know what low quality care is. Otherwise you don't know what is what.
1: Giving the clinicians the, the tools to be able to decipher what is most helpful and most up to date and, and having that framework so we can be better informed ourselves for clients when it comes to pain modulation yeah exactly amazing so that's neuroscientific pain modulation and Lars is in Sydney on October 8th and 9th and in Melbourne on October 15th to 16th two weekends super keen Lars will be an yeah. absolute pleasure to to host you and for the listeners out there who are keen to find out a bit more about your work and perhaps aren't from Australia and also want to get into contact with you online
0: yeah so they can write a message to me on my facebook uh page uh preferably my private page i i am quicker to respond on that one and they can also read on uh, on my website my uh, english website which is uh, laservery.com uh, and i have a lot of articles there sort of uh, casting light on many of the problems and often it's quite easy to cast, or it's easier to cast, um, cast light on the problems because of the nature of the problems within musculoskeletal care, meaning that the problems are often a very simplistic view of pain. When we are talking about solutions to, to pain treatment, that becomes a bit more difficult to do online. Uh, because of the complexity in the field. So one one unison problem with most of the solutions and popular solutions is that they are unimodal and they are uh, simplistic. And that is one reason why it's quite uh, easy or easier to uh, cast doubt on them. But solutions are much more difficult because they often have a great uh, degree of um, of complexity and uncertainty. And both has to be acknowledged and that is often not done very well in a short blog post.
1: That's right. and that's where the the deeper dives the courses really help to dive yeah. into the the nuances, the discussions, the interactions as well with other clinicians and other examples and cases. We are talking to a course yeah. nerd here. So I'm yeah. sure others will also be really keen, as excited as I am. So Lars, thank yeah. you very much for sharing your time with us and looking forward to seeing Thanks you in for the seven invite. weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah cool.